In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So here we are, right? <laughs> yes. And for today's episode, we're really going right off the grid with one of North America's leaders in clean tech, renewable energy development, solar project financing, and distributed generation. Our guest, Mr. Paul Gezi, has this global experience of power generation projects under feed-in tariff programs and power purchase agreement programs for both commercial and utility-scale projects. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, guys. Great to be with you. So, Paul, as a CEO of Control Energy Corporation, you're really in an enviable place in the world of energy, economics, technologies, and of course, your career. How could it be in a better place than where you are right now? So, tell us how you got to be uh, in this place in time. Sure. So, my path here started around 2007, late 2007, uh, in the FIT programs of solar in Europe. Uh, had started the development of Canada's first solar fund, 2008, uh, based on that experience, was a little early. And then 2009 came around and Ontario went to the Green Energy Act, which was essentially um, almost a copy of the uh, German Renewable Energy Act. So the timing uh, was off for the first year and then the timing was perfect. We got involved in the early days of solar in Ontario and securitizing projects. We brought some debt over from Europe and uh, put that all together, you know, and essentially FIT programs are born to die. And what I mean by that is they start off quite lucrative to attract investment and then they get extremely stingy as they get close to the price of retail electricity. Seeing the end was near in 2014, uh, we created uh, various exits and I asked the question, what's next? And what was next really was a bit of a fluke, to be honest with you. I um, started looking at apartment buildings as investments and I'd walk through the building, uh, we'd get the performer profit and loss. And the thing that jumped out at me was there's two costs that were accelerating way above inflation. One was energy and one was property tax. I didn't know much about property taxes and, and how to fix that, but I knew something about energy. And that led me to ask the question, I asked the uh, owners and the real estate agents, who's solving your energy problems? To which mostly I got a shoulder shrug, don't know, and we just accept the price and move on. <laughs> so I thought, well, there's an industry oh. right for disruption. <laughs> so that's really the genesis of Control Energy and where, where we started so I would say I got serious about that in 2015, started looking at various opportunities. I thought an acquisition approach would be best to start because the industry was quite fragmented and went public in 2016 based on that approach. have done four acquisitions, grown our revenue substantially, and here we are today. Wow. So that's interesting. Now, you're not the normal guest for us, right? We normally speak to, and I say this with love, nerds, right? Energy nerds, engineering nerds, architectural nerds. Now, what's interesting here is you, you saw the opportunity in the feed-in tariff situation, right? And you were early adopter there. You're early into where you are now. We're going to talk about some of the technology on that. But now I'm speaking to the, any engineers that are listening to this, you know, 
it's not just about the engineering. There is a mix here to be successful, right? You've got to bring money expertise, finance expertise. You know, you, you're not talking like an engineer, which is awesome. <laughs> this is one of the reasons we wanted to speak to you. Yet you're in the engineering yes. business, right? So look, I have, I have uh, we own, uh, you know, one engineering firm, and I would say one as close to engineering as you can get. And so I have great respect for the um, profession, what I would say is the challenge with an engineering mindset is you're you're in the moment of the day. You're not mm. two years from now. And so from the, the business side of it, if you're not two years from now, you're going to miss it. And that's, you know, investment bankers were telling me in 2007, you're crazy to launch a solar fund. And they were right. But about a year and a half later, they were wrong. And so it's the same kind of environment I see for uh, distributed energy deep energy retrofits, you know, moving to net zero and adopting blockchain is, you know, the the message right now is, is you're early and yet, you know, a year from now you may be late. So, so I appreciate your comment there. And it is true. Once everyone's doing it and you're engineering based on what everyone's doing, you're late in the capital upside cycle. You're now following. And uh, we like to use the word arbitrage. There's no arbitrage left in that business. And right. now you're just, you're selling time for money, you're a commodity, and you may be doing a great service, but you look like everyone else. So that's where I have to tiptoe between looking out two years and executing today. But but certainly we appreciate, you know, the you can't do anything in a building without an engineer. But what the building looks like two years from now, the engineer may not have the answer today. So Ooh, that's the balance. That was powerful. Go, yeah. go, Robert. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I guess, from coming from the financial background that allows you to step out and see those things developing where, as you pointed out, the engineer really is working in within the moment and part, and that's cultural. I mean, they've got clients, they've got projects that they, that they have to engineer, but they're thinking in terms of what's on their desk today. You, however, are above that and get to see sort of that horizon and how things are evolving. And that's a pretty powerful place to be. Yeah, it's, a, it's a strategy thing, right? So strategy, when you're in your cubicle, it's hard to see the strategy two years out, right? And quite honestly, you don't get paid to do it. So uh, if you think about the entrepreneur's position or, or from the business side is you, you have to see it, then you have to go monetize it. And yeah. no one's paying you on a time for money basis. That's what I see as the biggest challenge with the engineering world and buildings, uh, carbon, GHE, is you're not getting paid to figure out where the world is going or where the world is going to be. And it's very difficult to say, look, I'm going to take four days a week here to figure out where things are going and I'm going to reduce my, you know, professional income by 90%. And and that is a you know that that's that's the push and pull, right? And so I had the luxury of time and and being part of another business where I could take a year off, think about things, figure them out for myself and start executing on a strategy. And and even with that it's taken us from that point 2 years to get to where we are today, which is, you know, growing from 1.8 million of revenue to now approximately a 10 million run rate and looking to double that next year. If I didn't have that time and space to create that, you know, so I think what I see in, in kind of progressive organizations is they're either building small units or part of their team is being allocated to thinking about the future. So if you have a staff of 20, there's maybe you know one or two people that take a couple of days a week to start planning what the next vertical might be in two years. But I, but I would say this, if you're not doing that, you're going to get left behind. You're a pure commodity. You're selling time for money. And that's tough. That's that's not where the world is moving. The world is moving to disaggregate, remove intermediaries, remove obstacles. And so that that is a challenge for, you know, the entire industry around buildings for sure, and also around carbon 
and around energy retrofits. I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. My last blog was about was called FIFA Services Dead. Put your fist in a ball and hit yourself in the face. That's the same as doing FIFA service, right? It's just a nightmare. So I couldn't agree more with all the things you said there. But the problem with the building industry is there's path dependency, there's lobbying, there's special interests. It is corrupt and full of cronyism. So how do you get around that? You speak directly to owners with this message, I guess. So at the level we're dealing with, I would say we're in the top operational levels, which is just below the C-suite level. In other cases, we're in the C-suite level and they're bringing the operators with them. What I find with uh, institutional asset portfolio management real estate is there's various barriers all the way up to the board. And so the barriers can be operational or they can be financial. And what you have to do is if you look like a commodity and you're behaving like a commodity and you look like the other 50 pitches they've heard that week, you're, you're not going anywhere. If you're offering them something different and unique that solves their problem, you get access and you know you move to pilot projects. The other thing that we've discovered is typically, and this is not always the case, but any institution that is on the public side is under pressure on greenhouse gases and also being a better steward of the environment. Any large kind of private asset manager, real estate manager doesn't have the same pressure. So either they're building that because it's part of their value system or they're not. On the public side, that value system is somewhat being forced on them to, to comply or to do better. So, you know, as an example, we've been approached by groups that say, how do we take an existing building, a large building complex to net zero? And so, you know, there's certain things we can do with that. It's much easier on a new build, of course, but the majority of the industry is, is a old build retrofit. So that's what we're seeing in, in the industry. So getting past those barriers, getting into the C-suite and the board level, whether it's because it's something that's important to them or it's being forced on them by their stakeholders. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And you're right. The I believe the existing building market is the opportunity, right? If you if if the market represents hundred percent, maybe only one or two percent of that is new build, right? Ninety-eight percent of it is existing build, and that's the right. issue. It's except the interesting part is the new build gets all the press. Yes. <laughs> Right. Yeah, the right. PR, yeah, the PR on old build just is right. terrible, right? It's <laughs> terrible, right? <laughs> hopefully, we're gonna. Hopefully, control is gonna be part of changing that that ecosystem. You know, I just I just came back from Australia and I was there when they had their power outage and Elon Musk's battery system kicked in. I think it was zero point one two seconds, and he was already providing power to that grid. That's a good example of uh, Australia. They seem to be able to get things done. There's a lot less bureaucracy, someone comes up with a, a solution to a problem and they are able to uh, execute and engage. And I think Elon's done a great example there. I think is what we're sort of talking about. Yeah. So I, I think I look at it this way, wherever there's the greatest need, there's the greatest opportunity. So if we look at the California market, it's been extremely progressive with battery peak shaving, you know, d- demand management. When we look at Australia, there's, you know, there's, there, there can be a power crisis there. They've got ample sun. So I think uh, you do you do need a progressive view on the government and utility side because ultimately, you know, transmission and distribution in our world today is controlled. Now that could be that could be disaggregating over the next 10 years, but it's certainly not today. So you need some progressive policies, but also if the demand is there, what I find is is when the population is the most vocal, that's when changes happen. So if you look at Ontario as an example, you know, most of us complain about, say, 14 cents on average retail electricity prices because that's doubled over the last six years. 
But where's all the noise is really in, in the northern parts of Ontario where rates are 25 to 30 cents. And when that noise happens, well, you know, politicians get nervous. When politicians get nervous, policy changes. So if you look at what we're doing here, we're, we're moving to some form of virtual net metering. And what is virtual net metering? It's essentially a blockchain distributed ledger solution where, you know, you can have a power plant in one building feeding 10 different buildings through utility, through your utility bill. How you're moving that over the lines is a little different than how that's being accounted for on a sovereign, you know, building utility uh, basis. And so I think what you see in Australia for sure is driven by demand and need and also some progressive policies. And that is that is the future. The interesting thing for me about that whole ecosystem is if you're a utility, you're going to be disrupted. It's 100 percent clear. The question is, are you going to be a utility that disrupts yourself or are you going to be disrupted by the market? So right now, Control is working with two utilities that we can't name, both outside of Ontario, that have asked us to come up with a a battery storage distributed ledger solution, which basically allows every homeowner to be their own sovereign utility and exchange energy when they need to or not when they don't need to. And so to me, we see this in Ontario through some of our utilities, but most of them are using the old model of conservation, which is great. I mean, you need conservation in every system, but we are moving to this micro utility model and, you know, some are going to get it, some aren't. We're, we're excited about working with utilities because the scale is much larger than, say, taking two buildings and, and sharing a battery system or a solar system. It, there's just, it, it's hard to get scale in that model. So we're, we're quite excited about what we could do with these utilities on some pilots that we're developing. So, Paul, if you had a message for, you know, the boardrooms in government and utility management about self-destruction, what would that message be? Well, so I think, you know, disruption, uh, I always, it's, it's maybe an overused example, but if you look at the taxi industry in Uber, right, yeah. and how, how quickly that happened and how ferocious it was. It wasn't that Uber didn't exist before it happened. It was people weren't accepting that it was going to come. It was there and they were unwilling to accept it. And so my message would be, you know, distributed generation is coming. The people are going to demand it. The people want more control over their lives. They want more sovereign control over their energy use and, and how they how they pay for energy, how they use energy. Be part of the disruption or be disrupted. That's the message. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love that. I like yeah, that's that. A Tom, that's a Tom Peters message right there, right out of the book. <laughs> I'm going to use that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that shamelessly. <laughs> disrupt awesome. or be disrupted. Yes, absolutely right. So would you, Paul, would you say things, say take Canada, for instance, where we are at the moment, would you say is policy-led or market-led at the moment, this change? I think it's market-led. So what happens is... Um, there's enough people that shake the system in terms of votes. And so for sure, if you look at, let's use our home base, uh, the policies in Ontario that cause the most concern for politicians of the top three, you know, energy has to be there. It's so easy to say your energy bills are high. Don't vote for them. Vote for me and I'll make them lower. Now, we know that's not true because energy as a fixed infrastructure can't be changed overnight. We're not building new nuclear plants and we've put a moratorium on large utility scale plants. So how is anyone going to change that? The answer is it's through distributed energy and and the microgrids and distributed ledger technology. That's it. Those are the solutions. So any politician like any other politician is going to have to come to that conclusion. And I think that comes from the people saying we want change. So if you're a politician and you say you're going to change it and you don't, 
you'll be out of office. So I think that's that's what you're seeing generally in high electricity rate markets is that people are demanding a change. Now, the utilities are these 100-year-old embedded infrastructure silos that have basically been paid to run transmission distribution, have been paid to do some conservation, you know, are paid to upgrade and maintain and stabilize. Those are all valid things. But you can't say that's what you're going to look like 10 years from now, so you're not going to change. And I think that's the challenge that the market's going through. I do think there are utilities in Ontario that are adopting the disruptor model. A good example perhaps would be Electra, which is running its own battery storage and solar pilots across multiple homes. I, I think they get it. I think most utilities don't. And so, you know, what, what excites control is working with utilities to disrupt themselves. The the other part of that is is working with customers within the architecture of what the utility and the government allows. But those are those are different types of scale opportunities. We're, we're in, in our view, we're looking for big scale, and the big scale comes from the utility being its own disruptor, from our perspective. That's interesting because I mean you're right, that works because you're utilizing existing infrastructure. You're not trying to wipe it out and start again, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's that's cool. How do you f- see the I'm a libertarian, not not a throffing at the mouth one because I also believe in social medicine. But you know, I I'm a big fan of market solutions, right? So how do you how does the you think the carbon taxes that have been applied through Canada the last few years have made a difference? Do you think they have made a difference? So it, it's an interesting question, and I go back and forth on this one. So one thing for sure, you have to accept that. You know, we're part of the of the carbon problem. If you, if you can't accept that, then this conversation, you just kind of shut it down right there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So so if we're part of the problem, how do you solve it? So the, the, I don't particularly like the carbon tax on its own. What I like about the carbon tax is we're attempting to measure in a good or service that's being provided the cost of, of carbon. So I think that's valid. I think carrots work better than sticks. If there were incentives to move to this net zero emission, uh, and how would we do that? So from our perspective, we see the market being stuck and we're gonna come up with our own solution that we're working on, which is a form of distributed ledger technology using an incentive. And so if you're providing incentive and companies can monetize that incentive, people will move to that position. Number one, their stakeholders want it. Number two, Typically, most C-suite level executives are saying they have to do something. Uh, So if you look at the 2050 uh, targets and the companies that have said they're going to be net zero by 2050, it's pretty impressive. You're not going to tax your way there, but I think what the tax does is it highlights there is a cost. So where we see the disruption from our perspective is uh, if people are happy with the the current system and we can create a better system and create an incentive to move to net zero, that gives us a huge opportunity, a huge arbitrage in the carbon market that we're sitting on that we're really excited about. From a technical perspective, you know, we're looking at the different cryptocurrencies that could allow us to do that. Uh, the IOTA is something that we're quite excited about. But of course, you know, any most of the crypto markets are in their early stages of use case. I think it's accelerating, but uh, you know, two years ago, I would have no idea how to incentivize a large organization to go to net zero. Today, we've, we're building a platform that does that. So think about that rapid development where, you know, could we make the carbon tax obsolete? I think the answer is yes. That would get my vote. Because again, I agree with you, you have to price carbon, right? 
because there's a cost to the environment to it. So it's an externality that needs a number. But then, as you say, what do you do? I like, I like what you're saying there because using blockchain, if you can find a way to use that as an incentivizing thing, that's great because you think about disruptions in the past. I don't, I'm old enough to remember fax machines. There was a year when there were no fax machines, and then there was a next year when everybody had a fax machine, right? Uber's the other example of that. So it's interesting. So for full disclosure, I my my retirement account owes shares in Control Energy Corp, and I'm very glad about that, particularly after I've heard this conversation, because there is going to be some first mover advantage here, right? For sure. So what we're seeing right now is um, I, I would separate the blockchain into really, we, we could micro split this up, uh, pardon the pun, but I would say right now you're, you're dealing with an ICO market, which is an initial coin offering, right? Which is very speculative. It's, it's hype driven. My view is 90% of the initial coin offerings will be gone in the next five years. The ones that survive are really what I call use case um, applications that can scale. So Ethereum is a great example. Ripple, you know, nobody... A couple of years ago, we weren't talking Ripple uh, today. So it's, it's use case driven. Can you use that platform to do something with that's scalable, that's changing the business landscape? And so if we separate that from distributed ledger uh, blockchain, uh, we're very excited about the use cases and not speculating on the currency. So from our perspective, if we can bring in extra value, if we can create arbitrage, if we can disrupt through our existing business segments and units and verticals, through distributed ledger, there's huge value for us as a company. We don't need to create the next crypto to do that. And so I think the market is kind of polarized and moving between right now. You know, do you speculate on the ICO in itself or are you focused on the use case? And I would say we're somewhere in between. And uh, like the early days of the internet, I mean, you, you could sell a domain for millions of dollars that really had no other value than the domain. Um, and so I, I do see some parallels here. And, um, I think investors are struggling with how to play the sector, you know, what to look for, what represents true value over the long term, what's hype. And uh, so we've stayed away from the crypto hype and really focused on how could this add value to our business. From our perspective, we thought, well, we could develop this and it would be become a software development company or we could go do an acquisition that met our, met our needs. So we're involved right now in a we've publicly announced an acquisition of a software as a service company that moved into the blockchain space last year, that's working with IOTA. It doesn't preclude us from working with other solutions, but you know we're very interested and intrigued by the um, platforms that IOTA is creating and uh, some of the challenges they've solved uh, in, the, in the crypto market. That's interesting. I, I, I applaud your uh, sort of forward thinking there. How do you think clients are going to react to this? So, you know, we're talking about blockchain here, right? And I think... The general public not really sure. They could, they've heard the word, but they're not sure what it is. Most people are not sure what it is. So when you take that to I don't know a big portfolio owner of buildings, and you're gonna you're gonna breeze in there, you know, give them a slideshow, and none of them are gonna stick their hands up and say, "I'm not sure what blockchain is." Well, I'll I'll, I'll give you a real life case. We have a one of our clients manages about a billion dollars of uh, of assets. You know, very sophisticated, very knowledgeable. And so, you know, we organized a lunch and, and basically the, the first question was, what the hell is blockchain and how does it make my business better? And how are you going to make me money? And I was like, let's cut right to it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> question number one. So, so I call that business use case. <laughs> yeah. So how did, how did you answer that in a very... 
Yeah. So we looked at three specific use cases. One is, you know, can can you become a distributed supplier of energy? Right. So think of your portfolio of buildings spread over a region. Is there a way for you to create a distributed ledger solution where you're either selling excess energy into the grid or getting a form of reduction across your portfolio where every building is, is a sovereign unit in your distributed ledger? And um, so the answer to that is potentially if the regulations around virtual net metering come to fruition, which is based on government policy. So that's one. Two is, is there a way to make each building smarter and, and have a data, uh, more data points in the building around energy, around use, conservation? And can we can we package that data and sell it? So at, at the beginning, we, we had that little joke about your show, you know, monetizing your show through distributed ledger. Well, so it's the same for data. If, if your building is a smart, connected building, can you take that information? Will someone buy it? And if we think of Google Nest or we think of Google Home, you know, why does Google want a $40 device in everyone's home? Because they want to know what you're asking, what you're ordering, what you're thinking, and, and then service providers are going to coalesce around that information. It's no different for building owners. So through IOTA, which is a machine-to-machine designed uh, cryptocurrency distributed ledger, it really fits into the whole aspect of monetizing bits of data across portfolios and, and what's the value of that. And then the third is if, if the building owner has a mandate to be a carbon neutral, how are they going to get there? And so, you know, there's, there's really only three ways to get there. You're retrofitting your existing property, you're doing deep conservation, and you're working in the carbon offset markets, the voluntary markets. And we have a solution for each of those. So when we walk into a meeting, the answer to each of the questions that we're saying is yes, yes, and yes. It just depends on the overall approach, what they're looking for, what their mandate is. And um, the nice thing about our solution is, is it's not one application is going to fit every portfolio. There may be some give and take on each of those solutions. But the interesting thing is that's all through the distributed ledger uh, technology. So if I could summarize right now, because there's a lot of, we have a, we have a wide range of audience. What we're talking about here is a property development or property owning own company that has a building that they can turn into a power source through technology, photovoltaics, and using that power, not only to use it in their own building as a, as a, a green energy source, but also to take that energy and marry it with the other buildings in their portfolio. So now you have a real estate asset that becomes a power producer. And that energy then can be either distributed throughout the city core or anywhere under the grid. And so that's where the revenue generation comes from. And the blockchain, from what I understand, this is what will be used to manage those financial transactions. Is that sort of what we're talking about? Yeah, so it's uh, it would be photovoltaic, uh, geothermal, a battery storage. Now, in the in the example that you've defined, you need the cooperation of the utility and the government. Because essentially what you're doing is if you're storing power and you're moving it, say, for example, at night or on peak uh, shaving, there are rules and regulations that you have to follow because we don't own the transmission and distribution. So in that scenario, you do need the assistance of the policymakers and the LDCs. That is a challenge to that segment of distributed ledger technology growing, without a doubt. So. In the worst case scenario, the utility could say, you know what, we're, we're being threatened. We don't like this. You know, back to Adam's point, we'll go lobby to minimize this or 
you know, make this uh, five megawatt cap and never bigger, et cetera, et cetera. On the utility side, imagine the power of the utility to say, you know, I've got a thousand buildings in my jurisdiction. I now want to put in a thousand battery systems. I'll allow those building owners to sell to each other because they're all using energy at different times during the day for different base cases. We'll manage the whole network and we'll be essentially not the centralized authority, but we'll create this peer-to-peer potential. And for that, there's a reward for us embedded in the system. That is a much more sustainable model for utilities than, and for control than to say, you know, we're going to have three pilot projects. It's going to take us five years and we need to beg the utilities permission unless the policy is written, right? So where we see a value in Ontario is the virtual net metering policies that are being written are really about opening that market up with the cooperation of the utilities. And so one thing we have to be careful with distributed ledger technology is you may have a system, but the regulators may not approve of that system. Right. So as an example, we're seeing that with ICOs, right? ICOs are essentially um, venture companies going public through a crypto coin. And you hear about all the regulators clamping down on that. So what you've created is you've created a, an opportunity for funding, but you're not following the securities rules. So it's the same for energy. You may have the solution but the regulators are going to impose some limits on that. So we're really excited about the utility side of it because a utility, the scale is unlimited in terms of uh, utilities going to this approach. And so some of the, you know, some of the progressive utilities are moving this direction already. So what, what building owners should really be aware of is, is what can I do in what jurisdictions can I do that? And how do I gain value from this? So that's the distributed energy side of it. On the data side, data can be monetized today. So uh, yeah, if you have a progressive building owner that you know wants more data out of their building, wants more information, and wants to find ways to monetize that, you know, we can do that today. And on the carbon side, if someone said to us, I, I need to go net zero because it's my passion or because my stakeholders want it, we can we can facilitate that today. That's interesting. So really controlled energy is a vertical for everything here, right? In this play. Yeah, so I would say our our, our yeah. broad our broad verticals are uh, uh, you know distributed generation with retrofit, carbon monetization and reduction, and then we've got the uh, Internet of Things and IoT data monetization. Those are the three big verticals that that we're solving problems in. I'm a big believer in the fact that data analytics is going to be a huge building services thing in the future. I think you're in the right space there. So it sounds to me you need a lobbyist to get on the utilities here. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, the, the lobbying is going to come from the people. And so, you know, when we have utilities, as an example, we had a utility from Europe contact us and say, we're looking at all these different opportunities. Uh, you know, what, what can you show us in terms of a use case? And so you, when you see that happening, you know, there's pressure and you know, there's an opportunity. And um, so from our perspective, the pressure is there, the pressure is going to build and it may happen, you know, it may happen in increments. So over a period of 10 years, 80% of the grid is moving to, uh, you know, microgrids or distributed. Uh, but if you're there as a solution provider and you've got some great solutions um, and you're in that space when it's growing, that's how we're going to grow our business. Do, do you see uh, a way to internationalize what you're doing? I mean, clearly you're focused on the Ontario market at the moment. Well, that, that's the beauty of uh, distributed ledger technology yeah. is, is when you have it, you know, it, it can move anywhere. It can be anywhere. 
So we do see that now. There's also, I would say, there's lots of competition. We're not the only ones thinking about this. And the competition is growing, but the pie is so big. I mean, if you think about the three verticals, uh, data, distributed generation, and uh, greenhouse gas emissions are about a $2 trillion industry. So there's lots of room. Uh, there's lots of opportunities. And if you think about control success, you know, going from, say, $1.9 million to $20 million of revenue, it didn't take much to do that. So this is what I tell investors. So, so when you look at that, and you know you've you've owned businesses, and, and you know that organically, sometimes it's not easy to do that. But if you're in the right space and the space is booming, and you're executing, you know, getting from twenty million to hundred million is going to be a leap. But given the size of the market, it's not a massive leap. It's not you know it's something that can be done fairly practically. So that gives you a, a sense of size and scale of what's happening. Yeah, it's just uh, it's an amazing time to kind of witness all these disruptive technologies come into play and how to capture them and monetize them for the benefit of the consumer. Yeah, we live in interesting times for sure. That is, I mean, even a hundred million in a two trillion dollar market is just nothing, right? It's such a exactly. rounded right. our, era. Ch- our challenge is if, if we talk much bigger than that, you, you, you're viewed with a skeptical lens. So you always have to keep it in the context of where you are today, where you think you can go, size of the market. But yeah, it's um, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting time, also from the perspective that uh, the regulators are catching up, and so whenever you have that happening, it, it creates uncertainty, it creates volatility. Uh, you're you're seeing that in the in the kind of crypto distributed ledger markets today. You know where where's that base where you've got the regulators on board and you've got the entrepreneurs running, and so I think a lot of the push and pull you're seeing today is we just don't know. And so that it does create uh, enhanced volatility uh, for sure. And Paul, where does the institutional investor uh, come into the play? I mean, they obviously they're managing billions and billions of dollars. They're looking for a return on that uh, on that money. They must be looking at this marketplace. And then, and the second part of that question for you is that how do how do we prevent the uh, the criminal aspect of money coming in and, and influencing the marketplace? There's sure. all going to be a lot of self-serving dollars looking for, for returns, yeah, right? Sure. So I can speak to more the uh, the stock side of this, the, the stock market side. It, the institutions have really piled into the mining side. And the mining side is basically, you know, setting up supercomputers and, and mining the coins that can be mined like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, and mining simple, it's transactional. It, it's easy to understand the margin. So I would say that's where most of the money has gone from the hot sector perspective, applied blockchain a little bit less. And the reason is it's a little bit more complicated. You're dealing with business use cases and you're trying to understand how the business is going to scale. But my view, and this is what I say to investors, is if if Bitcoin goes to, say, $4,000, which none of us know if it's going to 4000 or 40, you know, miners don't make any money at 4000 because of the cost of the electricity, the cost of operation. So you have a pretty binary environment. You're either going to be making a lot of money or, or nothing. Uh, in our case, as an applied blockchain opportunity, you know, we're going to have a certain amount of revenue and growth without the blockchain distributed ledger. We're adding our blue sky growth through that. So then it depends on, on what kind of institution you are. If you're looking at kind of the pure speculative mining or you're willing to place some bets on applied um, opportunity. So I would say that the market is divided right now on that. And we've had uh, last year about, you know, I would say over the last six months, we've had a frenzy where we've seen a lot of stocks run up and, you know, come way back down. We've been pretty steady because we're, well, I don't think we're viewed in that speculative lens. So that's that perspective on the, you know, on the criminal side of it. It's really interesting because, you know, my view on this is it doesn't matter what the regulators do. 
that kind of money is always going to find a home. So as an example, you know, what they're saying is that really started off in Bitcoin. It's moved to things like Monero, you know, so every time the regulators come hard at that, that side of the, of the world, they just find a new avenue to, to move into, kind of find a little crack <laughs> of right. dark to move into that. So, no pun intended. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no pun intended. So I would say that part of the world, you're never going to be able to clamp down on that because it finds a solution, you know, before you, before you have the answer. So um, I, I would say the major uh, currencies are getting rid of it, but the minor ones are picking it up. So, yeah. So where do you see, where do you see control uh, five years from now? Uh, so our, so our view of the world is, is we're, a, we're a big player in the um, distributed generation side uh, through blockchain and uh, working with utilities we're a major player in the carbon trading and voluntary carbon offset markets, helping companies get to net zero. And we're a data powerhouse, um, uh, an analytics uh, a machine, putting all those three together. We'd like to target the $100 million revenue business and, and become very attractive either to, you know, stable dividends or becoming acquired by another player in the market. You know, the example I use is, is Google acquired Nest thermostats for 10 times revenue, you know, not, not multiples of earnings, 10 times revenue. And why did they do that? Because it's all about data. It's all about analytics. It's about being in every house with uh, machine learning on, on what people are doing and saying. And uh, we like, we see ourselves as that in the building market and, and working with the IOTA machine to machine cryptocurrency gives us that platform to move right now. So we're, we're very excited about that. No, I think that's good. So I want to be respectful of your time because I know you've got some ink to go to. So I've just got a couple of small, one, two, two more questions from me. One is now you you employ engineers and probably you're. I see control engineering employing engineers, data analysts, software specialists, blockchain specialists. You know, it's like a it's like a ball bullpen, right, <laughs> of different people. So you know, my message to any engineers listening to this is, you know. Your job's engineering for sure, that's your training, but your job in the future has to be multi-skilled, right? You have to have a skill stack that at the very least extends from engineering to data analysis, right? Has to be. So, you know, if you're a newly minted graduate, take this conversation to heart. The future is changing, right? And it doesn't care how hard you work for that degree, it really doesn't. <laughs> so there's no question there, I just wanted to get that out because I've... Um, I'm involved in mentoring some graduates at the moment. But the other question is then, just to wrap up for me, are you pessimistic or optimistic for the next five and ten years? On, uh, on which aspect? On just <laughs> business in general. The ability for the system to change in the direction you've just been talking. Uh, so I'm, I'm hugely optimistic because I think what the world is waking up to is there's a, there's a different speed now, a different speed of disruption. And um, so I, I can think back when, you know, when I graduated with my uh, chartered accountant degree and how the world moved to the pace that the world moves at today, it's, it's not even close. And so I look out 20 years forward and I think, well, that's going to accelerate as well. So, so I think old industries recognize that they're easily, they could be disrupted and, and they're thinking about how to prevent that disruption. And I, and specifically with, the utility world, you know, I think they are all waking up. You can only hide from, with regulation for so long. And the reason I know that is we're being contacted by groups that are looking for solutions that two years ago wouldn't have contacted us. 
And so that tells me that the pace of change is increasing, but also people waking up to disruption is increasing. And I think I'm hugely optimistic about that. On the carbon offset side, I really believe it's a massive and undervalued market. And it's being used right now more as a social responsibility adder as opposed to transforming. And so I think my view on that is carbon taxes will be replaced with some form of incentivizing change and that change is going to come through those incentives so i'm i'm a i'm a hugely optimistic about the carbon markets and then you know the whole world is data i mean it's we can't live five minutes without our phones you know go to any meeting and it's hard to keep attention so i think from that perspective those three verticals are are three things that are changing for all of us quickly and, and we're in the thick of it so now it's about you know, can we execute on a strategy and can we deliver value? And ultimately that comes down to, is your customer happy with what you're doing for them? And are you, are, are you more than a commoditized service? Which, you know, that's, that's the key to really the expansion of any margin, any business is, you know, the delta between commoditization and, and solving the big challenges. Couldn't agree more with that, actually. And I think you summed it up nicely. So, okay, I, th- I think we better wrap it up now because, uh, you know, we've, we've hit our time limit. But I just want to say, you know, for me, control energy, well, yes, my retirement fund, I'm shares in it. But what I like about what you're doing with control energy is it's reinventing the engineering firm. It's taking a wide perspective, right? It's not just being in your silo doing what you're doing day after day. It's taking that vertical, the wide view, going with a whole solution, right? That's what this industry needs to change, in my opinion. So, I am very positive on what you're doing. I wish you all the success in the world there. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Have a great yeah. day. Thanks for your yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. Good Thanks you, very much for Thank your you. time, Paul. Thank you. So what did you think of that? That was awesome. That was some big, big vision stuff, right? I mean, those the lens that Paul looks through is uh, really fascinating, you know, and particularly for somebody who – comes from an accounting background, you know, the chartered accountant. I mean, a lot of CAs have big vision capabilities, but he, but he's looked at the world from a way different lens than other accounting type minds. It's really great to see. Yeah. I mean, what, see, for something to be disruptive or move on to a new paradigm, sorry for the cheesy word there, but it does need someone from the outside looking in because sometimes you're so in it, you can't see it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and most engineering jobs and architectural jobs, it's come in, crunch out that job, crunch out the next job, crunch out the next job. And as he said, it's very unusual to step back and not do that and purposely think about how to change, how to evolve. What do you say? You know, if you're not doing that, if there's someone in your firm not purposefully in the leadership ranks doing that thinking, you're ultimately going to fail. And I truly believe that, actually. I think he's, he's on to something there. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, he, I think you probably wrote this down. I know I did. And that is, you know, disrupt or be disrupted. Yes. In fact, I might have to make that the title of the blog post when we signal the uh, this episode being dropped, because that is very profound. Yeah. And when you hear it, I mean, I mean, I've read that before many uh, books. I mean, and you've probably read that before and the many business books that are out there, disrupt or be disrupted. But I think, and it used to be a cliche, but today uh, things, it's not. 
it's very easy to be disrupted. And again, you know, we talked about Uber, for example. That was a total disruption of the of the status quo. And the world of engineering and the world of power and architecture and utilities and government regulation and policy can no longer hide. Like it's it's just a matter of time. I think society through the internet and the be able to communicate so easily, uh, the voices will rise up as they have in many other areas and uh, get that change started. Yeah, I, I think they're doing some great stuff there. And I, it's going to be very interesting to see if Control Energy does scale as he, as he thinks. And I think it will because it is, if you're, if you own a thousand buildings in a big portfolio, there's someone who's coming along to solve your problems policy-wise, right? So you can turn around to your shareholders and say, yeah, I know by this time we're going to be net zero. This is how we're going to do it. There's some certainty. It's not pie in the sky. Now, whether they're going to pay for it is going to be the other question, right? Right. I mean, and that's the thing about control. I mean, they are sort of a conglomerate of, of companies, as I understand. So it's not just controls profitability, but it's also their uh, subsidiaries as well. And those are hidden behind their ledgers or are those uh, profit loss statements available? Do you know? Oh, well, it's a public company, so they will have to provide courtly earning statements. So all their stuff is public domain. And I've known Paul since he started that and he's, he has everything he's told me he's going to do, he's done. I think the other thing that is very understated and misunderstood in the, in the property business is data analytics. All right, so let's say I'm a designer and I can buy data that tells me, okay, I'm designing, I don't know, let's say I'm designing a rental building that's going to be rented to young families. And I can buy data that tells me with very high levels of certainty, how much water they use when they turn the lights on, when they don't, you know, all that stuff, the whole profile of what that building should look like. And you can design around that instead of rules of thumb. Yeah. I'm looking at, uh, you know, our uh, interview that we had with Mario and I got to think, you know, Mario and Paul have probably met or, or talk to one another, possibly. I, th- I think so. I think so. But, you know, that if you go back to that interview and you listen to what Mario was talking about and what Paul was talking about, they're, you know, different, different sectors, but the underlying story is the same as, as it relates to the data, right? Very powerful. The monetization of data is is huge. And of course, as Paul brought up in the interview with Google acquiring Nest, it was not about necessarily the product itself, but the data that it could provide. Yeah. You know, and when you're selling a fee-for-service firm, you're lucky to get three or four times EBITDA. When you're selling technology and data, you're getting, what does he say, nine, ten times revenue? Yeah, give me that business model any day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's on that's on revenues. That's not earnings. Yeah, that's, yeah. Re- yeah. that's revenue because they know that data yeah. value it, it accrues and goes up by multiples over time, right? So yeah, people are just not thinking. You know, the days of having your old job and just thinking about your job are really gone. I mean, the takeaway for me here is you know the work environment to be a professional in the property business, what that means and what you have to take into your skill stack and thinking is just expanding exponentially at the moment. Yeah. One trick ponies are not going to do well going forward. Well, in many ways, this means that there's hope for mechanical uh, and electrical engineering companies because it means that your your current standard operating procedure for business today, which is based on serving the needs of your client, architectural clients and building clients, can shift into an area where you become now 
the technical resource for this distributed uh, energy uh, system because they need engineers to do that. And as if you can participate on that as on a, on a share basis, uh, rather than on a revenue basis, you know, where you're, you're just, instead of selling your time for money, as Paul pointed out, but you're actually dividends on the, on owning these Bitcoin or the coin, the, the cryptocurrency, it changes your model, but it gives you your business hope. Uh, and it gives it another opportunity that maybe instead of, you know, dying slowly on the vine, as many of them are, or being acquired by a larger engineering company, which is also good. We know what it's like to sell a business. Yeah, it's God nice. bless them. <laughs> God, God bless them. those that want to take take our take our our worries away and exchange it for money. Shame yeah. on them. <laughs> yeah, I, I took the king's shilling, and it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, you know that when he sold his business, and this is a lesson to all those that, that have uh, owned businesses, we bought and sold businesses. Is that when you sell a business and you actually come out of it smelling like a rose? Um, it allows you to step back and for a period of time ask, okay, what's next? And, you know, you can, you get rid of all of that garbage and all of that baggage. You take a big breath and go, well, that was interesting. Now what? Yeah. It's so the other takeaway there that I hope people picked up was let's go back to his life before Control Energy Court, where he was in at CEO of the Solar Income Fund. He was ahead of that curve and sold out at the peak of that curve, right? And he's now in the front end of another curve. And I'm pretty sure he will sell at the peak. He's not that guy who rides it to the end and then gets out for no money, right? So, you know, there's a lesson there, guys. You know, I've, I've been in businesses where we have had offers and we were so full of ourselves and the hubris of how awesome we were. We didn't sell at the peak and we sold at a non-peak, right? You know, you got to get out. If, if you're in, someone said to me, only ever start a business knowing you're out and knowing the metrics to get out. And then get out, even if it's the top of the market and you think everything's going to go on forever. Just get out, right? Yeah. My uh, my dad's a CA. My brothers are CAs. My other brothers are CMA. And you know, and I I rebelled. I went into the engineering side. But I sat at the I sat at the kitchen table and I paid attention. You know, I'm the, I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. You know, <laughs> like I, I I listened to crap and I learned stuff, right? And one of the big lessons that they always said: if you're going to get in, have an exit strategy to get out. You never get into business thinking that it's going to last forever because that's not what happens. That's not real. So make sure that you have an exit strategy before you have an entrance uh, strategy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So, uh, yeah, to wrap up, I think that was a really interesting one. And one of the optimistic things that came out of that for me is maybe there might be a renaissance in the status of engineering, right, as this business model develops. Wouldn't that be great? Because it's been commoditized to nothing now. And I'd love to see a renaissance and a rebirth of the status of engineering, technician level and engineering level, you know, in terms of the value that that brings to what he's doing and what that solution is. So, you know, again, I still say to people, an engineering or technical degree is totally worth the money you put in. The return on investment is awesome. And I think maybe, you know, taking the optimistic view here, the market's going to start recognizing that a bit better going forward. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've done here today, Adam, is that for the students that are in university right now or the colleges and they're looking at graduating, maybe to be instead of searching for the traditional engineering firm to look for, look for these companies that are looking at distributed energy uh, systems. And that may be your future. So if you if you know, if you're looking for some guidance, if we could do some mentoring today on online, that would be one of the statements. Awesome. Couldn't agree more. I think we should wrap it up there, mate. I think that's a a nice upbeat. Okay. 
Great episode. <laughs> See you on the next one. Yeah. You bet, Adam. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time.